hi there, and welcome to a special live edition of the Northern Agenda podcast, bringing you the politics news that matters for the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda Editor for Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News and Newcastle Chronicle, and I write a daily newsletter about Northern politics called the Northern Agenda. Now, there's only one topic on the minds of politicians and business leaders in the North today, and that's Jeremy Hunt's first budget as Chancellor. He delivered it at lunchtime today and there were some big national news lines. We saw a major expansion in state-funded childcare and tax breaks for businesses in budget measures aimed at boosting economic growth. A recession will now be avoided, but living standards are going to continue to drop, we were told, and inflation will drop dramatically. The energy price guarantee, which caps average household bills at £2,500, will be extended at its current level for three more months. And on those all-important fuel and beer taxes that I imagine we'll be reading about on the front page of The Sun tomorrow, the fuel duty freeze and the 5p cut will be maintained for another year, saving the average driver around £100. There's also going to be a Brexit pubs guarantee, which will see duty on draft products up to 11 pence lower than in supermarkets. So here's how the Chancellor ended his speech, which clocked in at just under an hour. So, Madam Deputy Speaker, in November we delivered stability. Today it's growth. We tackle the two biggest barriers that stop businesses growing investment incentives and labour supply. The best investment incentives in Europe, the biggest ever employment package, for disabled people more help, for older people barriers removed, for families feeling the pinch, fuel duty frozen, beer duty cut, energy bills capped and for parents 30 hours of free childcare for all under fives. Today we build for the future, with inflation down, debt falling and growth up. The declinists are wrong and the optimists are right. We we stick to the plan because the plan is working and I commend this statement to the House. What was in the budget for the 15 million people in the north of England? That's what we're here to talk about, and we've got a fantastic panel full of expertise about northern politics and policy to dissect what it all means for people in our region. We've got Zoe Billingham, the director of the IPPR North Think Tank, Nicola Hedlam, the chief economist at Red Flag Alert, and former head of the Northern Powerhouse at the Government Cities and Local Growth Unit, joining us in typically dramatic last-minute fashion. (laughs) Thank you for coming, Nicola. Uh, Tom Lees, the Managing Director at the Manchester-based economics consultancy firm Bradshaw Advisory, and Henry Murison, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. What a great panel we've got. So nice to have you all on today. Thank you, thank, thank you for joining us. There's a lot to get to, a lot to get through. There's a lot, a lot to digest. Um, I just want to go around everyone and just get a sense of what were the most significant bits of the budget for you, uh, full hour-long speech. Um, Zoe, first, what, what were the main sort of standout points? Thanks, Rob. Um, from my perspective and from um, looking at it from IPPR North's perspective, for the North and the 15 million people living here, um, the two levelling up offers were the trailblazer deals, um, both in Greater Manchester, but also in West Midlands with the devolution of powers and policy in transport skills and housing. This is a really welcome development um, on the devolution agenda and again empowering our metro mayors which we've long championed so that was good to see today and look forward to understanding how that can be fast forwarded for other areas. The second area for the north um, that 
was in investment zones. So the 12 uh, investment zones announced across England. They were pretty modest in size, I must say, a 16 million contribution in each place um, per year for five years. That's, that's not going to change the Darlan regional inequality, but it is reassuring that the government has turned a leaf from simply a kind of tax race to the bottom in terms of regional development and offering kind of investment in the regions on the cheap and instead looking at how we can invest in skills and transport in places. So those were two kind of positive developments. I would say as it stands, neither were at the scale that is needed to shift regional inequality. So I'd say levelling up is still very much on life support um, at this moment, and that's somewhat surprising given that we're probably only one year out from a general election. Tom, please. Now it was a uh, now it was billed Tom as a, a budget for growth. Had four based around four E's, which uh, I'm just trying to remember what they were. What they were. Employment. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, never, that's never a good sign if we can't. Remember. And every, and, and, well, exactly. But um, what, what what did you make of it? Did it tick the right boxes for you? <laughs> I mean, it was sort of, everyone imagines Jeremy Hunt's quite a sort of boring, dull kind of chap. Um, and it, it was a bit a bit boring and dull, but actually the, it was a lot more trans, transformative and substantive than I was imagining. Uh, there, was a, there was quite a lot of stuff in it. You know, the, the announcements around childcare, that was a big deal, right? Uh, coming out with uh, the trailblazing uh, deals as Zoe mentioned that's a big deal the investment zones 20 billion for carbon capture there's actually quite a lot of stuff in there uh it was much more substantive than than i was imagining actually interesting and um nicola would you would you agree with that obviously you've been uh in in government when these kind of announcements have been made like what what did you what did you make of the whole thing well i've had a bit of a weird one today to be honest because i've had a sort i had two screens while the budget was on and yeah, I was kind of, oh, Jeremy Hunt, this is exciting. And then also, I've, the markets are absolutely tanking on their absolute asses. And Credit Suisse might be about to throw us all into a second round of banking crisis. So I've been in that slightly twin place of thinking that, um, uh, uh, you know, as 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 engaging and as exciting as it is to think about some of the... Um, you know, we have to go out back around the loop again on LEPs and local government and all the rest of it. The the bottom line is, is that some of the wider economic fundamentals are so precarious that sort of one weird butterfly wing flap in another country leaves us feeling really wobbly. So that's kind of what I was I've been thinking today is a lot. And partly that's not only because I've been doing all the early morning slots all week talking about what might be in the budget so I'm a bit over it when the day it actually happens. So by the time the budget comes you're already uh, yeah, already a bit bored of it that's not 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 an ideal position to be in. Um, Henry, um, Lord Jim O'Neill from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership uh, put out a quote today saying um, this uh, budget feels like a return to the spirit of the uh, sort of original Northern Powerhouse period and a new era for Metro Mayors and local government. So that sounds like your uh, your organisation is broadly in favour of what we've what we've heard today. I think it's all steps in the right direction, largely. And I think the the trailblazer stuff is the most interesting because it is a substantial shift in how things are going to work in this country. Uh, and we're pretty obsessed with fiscal devolution, and I know a number of the people here are as well. And, and it is a very substantial move in that direction. I think a lot of people, obviously. Would like to go even further and faster and that's understandable but this is a big 
big step in the right direction. And I, I think reflecting on some of it, I, I think the, the kind of levelling up kind of stuff for towns and, and obviously there are some cities in there, Mighty Wakefield obviously in that in that group, along with kind of Oldham and a number of others, it is that is sort of still central interference and that money is all kind of held conditionally not given to mayor so i think my only critique would be that the trailblazers are in the right direction. we've lost henry uh he's frozen frozen for a minute we'll, we'll see if we can get henry back um yeah we so henry was talking about the trailblazer devolution deal for greater manchester which i think the details of which have just been published uh in the last few minutes and obviously this has been heavily trailed but I guess the essence of it is that um, Greater Manchester and the West Midlands are two areas of the country which both have established uh, mayors, one Labour, one Conservative and they have been given powers comparable to what uh, London, the the London mayor has to shape uh, their own destiny, new powers over things like education, transport, housing but most importantly uh, they've got one single budget uh, I think the best part of a billion pounds for Greater Manchester to spend uh, as they see fit, rather than having to constantly bid to the government for, uh, to, for, for small small pots of money. We were just talking about the Greater Manchester uh, trailblazer. Rob, deal. if only you had someone on your panel who'd written their doctoral thesis called Manchester Work in Progress. Mechanism. That sounds like you, that sounds like you Nicola. Why don't, why don't you tell us? In the Greater Manchester City region. It is a 10-year-old document. I know you've all read it carefully before inviting me on this panel. But I think that, that is where the devolution deals need to be seen as part of the constantly evolving governance of both Manchester and Birmingham. As I say, Manchester Work in Progress Um it's it's great, and people have been working on the the they're enthused about having a few quid to spend. But I'm going to be slightly contrary. I then worry about so with the LEPs kind of wrapping up. One thing that was really clear about when we did sort of MP11 work was the difference in capacity between good old GM and your Cumbria's and your other um, smaller places. I really do worry, although I am a a militant devolutionist and Greater Manchester, I'm hardly a a Manchester man, but you know what I mean? I'm in that sort of, I'm in, well, I'm not in the gang. Anyway, I've studied Manchester, I work in Manchester, worked on Manchester for 20 years. The the edges of the city region don't always see the benefit of city regional funding, let alone the edges of the country. And my worry is that we end up, you speed up the already fast, but you slow down what is already on a slower growth trajectory. And some of the work I've been doing about in gen- the economics in general at the moment is that, the econ- that, that in general, the economy is looking increasingly K-shaped all the time. So for every high line of this whizzy thing is happening, there's a low line as well. And the gap between your top line and your lower line kind of serves to it's a K-shaped economy. So you um, mean that Greater Manchester might benefit from it, but perhaps the places around the edge of Greater Manchester, maybe into Lancashire uh, or Cumbria or Cheshire, they might uh, disproportionately... They, they well, might if you've lost a left and you're having local government reorganisation as Cumbria are, I, d- I don't think there's much to be that excited about. And again, we're sort of... I don't know, the city slicker agenda appears, you know, um, 
you say Jeremy's not very interesting. He's clearly been reading his sort of center for cities and his kind of, you know, he's got his, his, uh, his, all his reports next to his bed for the kind of urbanists, the kind of muscular urbanists. But I'm not sure that necessarily helps us that much in terms of having a country that does work for everyone. So um, I don't know, maybe I'm just being a bit contrary because obviously I want Manchester to get all the pounds and powers that it needs. But it's um, it's creating very twin track kind of subnational economics in an already quite febrile subnational economic context. That's interesting. I mean, it seems like the the sort of snap reaction I've seen to the Greater Manchester Devolution deal seems broadly positive. Uh, the Onward Think Tank, which is obviously centre-right uh, think tank, described it as a serious step forward, but not quite the leap forward on fiscal devolution that it could have been. Fiscal devolution obviously being a, a, mayor, a mayor's ability to raise his own income for projects rather than having to uh, uh, go to central government for it. And um, one, some, an interesting bit of feedback that I've had when I've run stories about devolution and Greater Manchester, not that there's been a huge flurry, but a few people have emailed me who say that they're concerned about Andy Burnham getting uh, extra power without necessarily uh, the accountability to scrutinise it. And it looks like we, we do know a bit about how Andy Burnham and Andy Street are going to be held accountable, don't we? There's going to be a committee of of local MPs who are going to, uh, I think every every few months are going to quiz them in a similar manner to a select committee. I mean, um, Zoe, does that is that a good thing from your point of view? Is that going to make mayors more effective and accountable? So I think it's inevitable that as the Metro mayors receive more power and resources under their control that the kind of the question of accountability comes up and that's quite right you know if they're having um, responsibilities to the degree of a ministerial department then it's quite right that increased um, accountability and scrutiny should come with that I do have a few questions over this model and I'll kind of be interested to debate this between us because of course kind of putting metro mayors up in front of MPs creates this kind of new dynamic where metro mayors have to sort of report to their local MPs, which is actually, um, well, obviously we don't have a constitution, but constitutionally that is a kind of interesting development, which is a bit messy, to be honest, although probably it's seen as the best option for now. So I think right to, to move forward on accountability, whether the kind of regional select committees with local MPs is quite the right model to be seen. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, any other feedback from uh, the, the rest of you about what we've seen in Greater Manchester? I mean, it, it does give makes Andy Burnham a more powerful figure. Um, Tom, you're you're based in Manchester. Is that a good a good thing as far as you're concerned? Uh, Nick, Nicholas said something interesting about uh, creating sort of twin track sort of economies. But um, my sort of thought around that this is is it isn't it better to so you, you, an ideal situation, maybe everybody's having a lovely time, everything's fantastic everywhere, but it's, it, it's not really a realistic point to get to. And is it better to get a fantastic uh, city in every region that's doing really well, um, that's trying to uh, sort of help spread wealth and prosperity around the region, rather than it being this debate about North versus London, everywhere versus London. It's quite It's quite a novel development going now complaining about Manchester and Leeds, right? Um, and I think part, 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 of the issue, part of the issue with this is also remembering the competition's not sort of inter-UK, inter right? It's, it's Manchester competing with 
uh, Amsterdam and Paris, and it, it's that competition level. So I think we get really obsessed with UK internal competition, and it's it's much bigger than that. So uh, that's one point. I'm not interested in competition not... at all. I want everyone to do well, but you know, <laughs> well, it's it's not possible. It's not possible for everybody to do well, right? Some some areas will have better businesses, better leadership, better strategies, and some areas will have worse, and that's what happens. Well, that, um, that brings us on to um, uh, another big announcement from the budget, which is uh, investment zones, which are uh, basically uh, they're going to be. Uh, 12 of these investment zones around the country, which is a, a dramatic scaling down of what we were originally going to have. Under Liz Truss's government, the vision was that they, there would be these investment zones where uh, taxes and red tape are cut and bureaucracy is cut, so that the, these places would be all over the country. Now, there's only, only going to be uh, 12, uh, and they're going to be based around universities, and uh, six of them are going to be in the north of England, uh, in mayoral areas which is quite interesting greater manchester west yorkshire tees valley the northeast uh south yorkshire liverpool city region are all getting one i mean is uh it, are they going to be effective henry is, is it is, is that a step in the right, right direction as far as you're concerned and i i think my connection went when i was trying to say this before but i think zoe's right there 80 million quid over five years i mean which equates to what she was saying isn't very much but the business rates retention is much more important because the uplift in business rates could be significant. And Helix in Newcastle, do you mean that is a, do you mean a, an old city deal I was involved in, which shows how long in the tooth I'm getting in a, in a previous life. And that's generating big money now, serious money. So I'm more interested in things that have some long-term benefits places and discretionary spend that they can then use to reinvest in growth rather than just the sweeties. Do you mean the 80 million of centres is unimportant to me? I actually think some of the flexible skills stuff I've just been with Leeds City Council, and they were really excited about that. So I, I think there is some stuff in there that is good. Um, but if you think that you should give all of that as incentives to employers, because actually you don't need to give incentives to people to come and be, for example, at the Southern Gateway in Bradford or wherever, do you mean, or in, in, the, in the innovation corridor around Leeds. It, it, that might be a case in some free ports for that, but it really isn't. I mean, and I think there's a case against as well, but there really isn't a case for it in city centres that are attractive locations. So I think a lot of that money should be spent on stuff that raises productivity and attracts higher value investment rather than a kind of race to the bottom approach of I'll give you a few quid to come here rather than there. Because other than for FDI, obviously that leads to displacement. And kind of in the kind of the discussion we're getting into about is this about competition or is this about collaboration? I think certainly being here in France this week with the cities all telling the northern story certainly across the north there is no competition Do you mean they see themselves as a unit and their interests are aligned because what's good for Manchester is good for Liverpool what's good for Newcastle is good for for Leeds Do you mean it's not a zero-sum game and I think yeah. that that approach to economic development is where we need to get to um, but I think that it's an argument that somehow cities are bad for their surrounding areas I do think Cumbria needs a non-merrill combined authority do you mean that's what it needs if it doesn't want an air yet? Um, and that is better than having a lab. So I, I would argue that democratic decision-making is important. It's been great to get business people involved in this, but they largely haven't had that much power or role anyway. Let's create serious institutions that do draw on the expertise of business people in meaningful ways, but that are centred on democratic accountability. I think that's the right model. And I think that that's what Jeremy Hunt's largely suggesting. But what I don't want to do is take economic capacity and policymaking out of Cumbria. I agree with Nick about that. It's just not the right solution. But they could and should have gone from a non-mayoral combined authority by now. And this is the impetus to do that, because if you don't do that, you will have nouts. And so 
I mean, I'm, I'm all for voluntary decision-making by other places, but the, the end of the road is now there. You either have a non-mayor or a mayor or an authority, or you're finished. And I think that hopefully will focus some minds. Mm. Uh, we should probably say at this point, when Henry mentions uh, that he's in France, you're at the uh, MIPIM uh, conference in Cannes, aren't you? <laughs> Making us all very jealous, although obviously you're not in the, in the sunshine or on a yacht. Uh, at, at the moment, no, no yachts, and I've not been on a yacht, Rob, and I will not be stepping foot on a yacht while I'm Oh, go on, Henry! You might as well make the most of it. Go and find one. No, no yachts, Henry. I don't, I don't love, I don't love yachts. No, that isn't that isn't the corporate image we're going for. No, no, I don't think that would be helpful. Um, I mean, there's, quite, there's an interesting case study of um, a uh, investment zone that we we don't know where in in West Yorkshire or Greater Manchester, say they're going to be but we know in in the Tees Valley that the investment zone is going to be in Middlesbrough because Ben Houchin has, has has declared that that will be be the case and there's also obviously the big controversy in Middlesbrough at the moment over the creation of a mayoral development corporation where lots of powers that have previously been held by the council are going to get handed over to this uh, regeneration uh, body which has prompted a bit of a row there and obviously Middlesbrough is a is a is a not a big city it's a town it's at the wrong end of a lot of the league tables on things like crime rates and poverty and things like that I mean is, is there an argument that an, an investment zone would be a good thing for a place like a place like Middlesbrough would, would would you say any of you I think with investment zones you know we did we did a lot of work on Freeport these these sort of ideas have been around for, for decades and decades. They just change the name on them every every few years. Um, and, and some of the key problems with them are having focus. What do areas actually want to be really good at? Do they actually know what they want to be good at and how to be good at it and the tools and the different pieces to pull together to do it? And how easy to access some of the benefits and the bureaucracy that comes with it, comes with these zones, which we don't know is going to exist yet. With Freeport, some of the bureaucracy that's been put in place uh, in terms of monitoring, evaluation, compliance is so arduous that it sort of, it removes any benefits that may have come through the incentives. So it's also always proof is in the pudding of how they're actually implemented. So do they have focus? How is it going to be implemented? How is it going to be managed and run? Just to build on that, I think also, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's good to see that the, the new reincarnation of investment zones are a combination, at least, of tax cuts and investment. Because when we're just focused on tax cuts, it's as if we want people to invest in the north or businesses to invest in the north because it's the cheapest place to do business, which the UK as a whole is never going to be the cheapest place to do business because we have public health system, public education system that, you know, fundamentally supports workers and businesses to do what they do so um this kind of idea that we just make it cheaper and investment will follow is is you know is actually also not what businesses are calling for they want stability and long-term certainty and so i think the, the government seemed to sort of start to get that message but obviously one year out of an election that isn't perhaps very helpful to businesses who are looking for that now let's move on to um the two of the other e's that uh jeremy hunt uh Spoke, spoke about uh, prompting a few jokes about I'm going to uh, do another E now I think or so word, word, words words to that effect um, employment and education the two, two, uh, two of the other E's and I mean this is a big issue for the north uh, for the north the, the effort to get people who are economically inactive 
in into work. So the northeast as a region has more economically inactive people proportionally than any other region. And quite a lot of the budget speech was devoted to tackling that problem, things like uh, getting older older people into work. And obviously uh, the key one, sort of childcare reforms, free childcare for one and two year olds, more funding for wraparound uh, childcare. So the care you get before and after your kids go to school, more childminders, uh, things like that. I mean, th this is something that people have been crying out for and, and you know, Labour have been uh, very vocal on this topic as well. I mean, with all these things in, in the round, uh, do, do we think that goes far enough to address the, the sort of big productivity issues that the, uh, the country has? Uh, any of you? I'd really well, I really welcome the childcare intervention, something that IPPR have been long calling for, and it will move to hopefully all under fives getting a 30 hour offer at the moment. It's still very much tied to being a working parent. Um, and it's also, um, there's a kind of sliding scale, right, between 30 hours and 15. So um, that kind of uptick is really important. I, I think whether that works in practice will depend whether how childminder and um, childcare businesses respond and whether the government is going to give them enough to actually be able to supply those places. So I think there's important design feature there. On the sort of long-term ill and um, helping those people back into work or supporting them in work, I felt, on the other hand, the proposals were a bit lacklustre. There was mention of a sort of mental health fund to help um, support voluntary organisations. You know, I don't, I don't think that's going to shift the dial on preventing people getting into poor mental health or other conditions that are holding them back from working. So I think um, part, part good, part lacklustre. Interesting. There was a, a, a slightly cringeworthy moment, that I don't know if you noticed, where the Chancellor, uh, talking about the sort of uh, measures he was introducing to bring uh, more over 50s back into the workforce, he said, uh, Madam Deputy Speaker, I say this not to flatter you, but older people are the most skilled and experienced people, addressing yeah. Dame Eleanor Lang, the uh, uh, Deputy why, Speaker. Why which... you take a fight with a Madam Deputy Speaker? I don't, I, don't know. Know if, I, don't, I don't know if he meant it. I, I think he meant it to be a compliment, but it came out as the most cat-handed. I think he's just not, he's not got a great sense of humour and he was probably trying to have a joke, right? It's the truth of it. Mm. Yes, I think that, that was what his intention was, but it was uh, it, it did make me wince, uh, wince, wince, wince a little bit. Um, I mean, Nick, Nick what, what's your view on how we... It, it, did, what, did what we hear today go far enough to solve our productivity well i don't know it's here about how we're lagging behind in productivity is, it, is this <laughs> is this going to help well no of course it's not i mean you know i feel like i've had four e's like we've got three quarters of a million public sector workers on strike today <laughs> you know what i mean it's like and it was all very sort of smoothly does it inflation will be back down by to the end of the year by 2.9 percent but it's 11 percent now like it i don't know like in some ways it felt very i understand like presentationally yeah it, sort of you know it's still not a budget for growth it doesn't talk about how we're going to be able to pay for the public services that we want and need or um you know as i say there were there's nothing on you know my sister's a teacher and she's on strike today and she's like this is great it means i can watch the budget for the first time since i left university <laughs> it's a bit like i wouldn't mate there's no point not it's not for you you know, it, 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 feel, it did feel slightly unreal, given the scale of sort of some of the economic, again, 
if it if there was an industrial strategy worth having or a transformational something worth having, I think I might feel more excited. But as it is, as I say, it just feels to me like we're kind of waiting for something to happen. And uh, and and again, the, the sort of stacked up the to do list is so enormous. And yeah, take you know a few things. I mean, gosh, the childcare thing I'm sure is is, is integral to to working parents. But I said that I was I was doing this thing, Fantasy Chancellor, on Radio Five this morning, and. And we talked about the childcare thing, and suddenly I was just a bit like, "Oh, I've just realised that they're not really talking to me in the budget, are they? Because I'm child-free, I'm not on universal credit. Um, it's a back-to-work budget, but I feel like I've worked even harder." They're to- they're during talking- the you're you're, 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 you're going to meet the you benefit from the lifetime allowance being scrapped, Nicola. That's right. That's right. Yay me. Yay me. I'll be yeah, allowed yeah. to work till I'm 80. I will work till I'm 80 as well because I, I like it. I mean, that's another thing. I think the diff- the, the, we were talking before about people not wanting to be back in work. It depends if your work is interesting and stimulating and fun and brilliant or if it's backbreaking and tiring and all the rest of it. Like there's, there's, there's different working lives happening, isn't there? And, and, and different sort of realities for people. One other uh, sort of element of the the budget I thought I'd just touch on briefly, which is obviously energy uh, and, uh, you know, the energy crisis is the sort of backdrop that this all comes against. And the government has uh, is doing uh, quite a lot to try and increase the amount of clean energy and reliable domestic energy that it can get. But obviously that is a long term, uh, a long term thing. And at the same time, they're trying to hit their net zero targets and there was a big announcement which was a 20 billion pounds investment in carbon capture and storage uh, which has big implications for the north of England I think because there were a few parts of our region like uh, the Humber, the Teesside, Merseyside which are all trying to become world leaders uh, in this uh, in sort of green technology and uh, you know hydrogen all, all, all that kind of thing. Obviously it's sort of a global race, isn't it? Like we, like the, the North and the UK are trying to uh, race ahead in this technology so that we can get these jobs before other countries get them. Did, did, did we hear enough today about what the government is doing on that to, for, you know, our, our leading status to be maintained, Henry, do you think? So, I mean, it, the key point is that the ambition was set up here, right, when we picked the, the clusters that we wanted. So, side with Humber making the East Coast, and then you've got Heiner on the West Coast. And um, still, I mean, this 20 billion was announced, I just double checked, back on Friday, it was leaked to the Guardian. So it's not, not new today, Rob, we've known about it for a few days. And I think it's exactly the right thing to do. But we need to make sure that we've got exactly enough money to do all the projects we want to do, because there's, there's loads of them coming into the funnel. But that 20 billion, remember, is all leverage, right? So you, you put in some money to get this going, like we did with offshore wind, and all the capital actually is private. There's no actual requirement for government to borrow a penny. So it's just about underwriting that investment until there's a market for carbon, because obviously we're going to tax carbon, and so there will be a market for sequestering it because that will avoid you having to pay that tax. So it's a it's a pretty good business model. And mm-hmm. um, I was quite excited about the small modular reactor stuff as well. We have obviously had an SMR competition before, so it wasn't maybe a great phrase choice from the Chancellor, because obviously people have already been on Twitter comparing uh, when my now boss, George Osborne, announced a competition. But obviously the key point is if you could actually start negotiating with Rolls-Royce SMR, who are based in Manchester, um, to get get this going, then suppliers would start 
kind of seeing the, the benefits, the supply chain would start to gear up and that would generate jobs as well. And, and I think that sort of economic point is key to the net zero transition. And Zoe and her colleagues have done a great job making this argument, which is that if you want to, carbon capture is about stopping people losing their jobs. If you don't sequester carbon, people at Steelworks, people in other heavy industries on the Humber, in the Northwest, up in the Northeast, in Tees Valley, they will lose their jobs. We need to do that. Um, something like SMRs, um, is fundamentally about creating more UK content. So just like we sort of didn't get quite right with offshore wind, but we built the turbines, but didn't build them really in the UK. We build, we build some of the blades in Hull, but that's about it. We, with SMRs, can fix that problem and actually make more of them here. And the link to the Orca stuff is that a lot of the same manufacturers who are going to be busy making submarines. We're also going to need to gear up probably to be part of that supply chain because the skill sets are very similar. And so actually in those heavy industrial sectors, we could see significant new jobs being created if we get our act together. But certainty is key. And so it says before the end of the year, but let's get our skates on because the sooner we start that, the sooner the real economy starts to see some of the benefits. And that actually helps deliver the growth he wants. I mean, that it's not just committing to something that makes the difference. It's actually getting the jobs in the supply chain that we need to actually start being creative. And that requires some certainty, which on nuclear, we have just not had, right? We've dilly-dallied for far too long. And at least now we've got a chancellor who doesn't hate us and does actually want to do it. But he needs to not let his officials, who bluntly are not helpful in this space, yeah. get in the way. They've got to be told to start getting on with it. And the sooner he does that, the better. Just in the small print, the 20 billion was over 20 years. So that is only 1 billion a year, just to be clear. And, you know, IPPR, we call oh, for only, it. Only, only a billion. A billion, a billion is quite a lot of money. You could do quite, I could do quite a, a lot with a billion. So is this a, a billion? You can do a lot with a you can do a lot with a billion, but I'm talking not just about carbon capture here, but about the wider net zero agenda and what the total envelope that is needed in order to really meet our net zero goals, which we've estimated at 30 billion a year. And when we compare to the US with the US Inflation Reduction Act, that's already created 100,000 new jobs in this space or is due to that, you know, that dwarfs the, the the amount that we've um, managed in the UK. I think we're on about 11,500 jobs that have been tied to developments in, in net zero. And when we look to the EU, you know, similarly, they're coming forward with bold proposals. So whilst I'm not undermining the fact that a billion is a lot of money in the context of what other actors are doing abroad in the context of the 30 billion needed a year to achieve our net zero goals, um, the, the government's budget today was startlingly quiet, I would say, on net zero, save for that one um, one commitment. Yeah, well, that takes us on to the final topic. We've got just two or three more minutes just to whiz round. And just, what, was there anything or what was the one particular thing that you were wanting to hear in the budget that we didn't hear? I mean, the one thing that immediately springs to mind to me is transport. There was virtually nothing uh, about transport or HS2 or Northern Powerhouse Rail or buses or anything, uh, anything like that. I mean, um, obviously social care, the public sector pay deal, none of that was really mentioned. I mean, Tom, was, was there anything that you were, you were waiting out for that you didn't hear? I mean, just, be, just before I give you a quick answer on that, I mean, there's, Zoe is talking about this billion pound a year, but you've got to add up the other parts of the puzzle that are already being pledged. So, so there's an important thing around classification of SMRs as um, ESG investments, which could help drive a lot of private sector investment. There's catapults doing things, there's other funds there. So it's not, it's not, you know, to be fair to the government, it's not just there's one billion pound a year and that's it. There's lots of different pots and lots of different funds going on. Yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of what we didn't hear about, I think one one of the other things that 
uh, you know, with sympathy with Zoe, that I think we're, we're missing a trick on. And we know we're so fantastic at missing out on a major global opportunities. It's one of our sort of specialities. We sort of spot them and then we don't get our act together for a long time. I think it's sustainable aviation fuel. Um, mm. th- there was no, uh, there's plans to put a big plant in Immingham, uh, all around uh, different parts of the UK and the North. Could, could create many thousands of green, high quality jobs, help uh, aviation transition towards net zero. Uh, they need to have a contract for different mechanism to help make that affordable and, and uh, happen. So that's one of, one of the things I would have liked to hear about. Thank you, Tom. Um, Zoe, what, what, anything particularly, any particular glaring emissions as far as you're concerned? Yeah, so absolutely. In, in addition to kind of further moves on net zero, like like you, Rob, on the transport front, I was ready for a screeching U-turn on the delay to HS2, but that wasn't to be. Um, no mention of Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, and then the third area, which I think is a question of fairness across economy, as well as for the North, is the taxation of wealth. And IPPR have long called for the equalisation of taxation taxation on income and wealth that's aligning capital gains with income tax um, so that work pays as much as wealth pays and you would think it's quite a simple adjustment to make the economy fairer but no movement on that either today so those are my three areas interesting and um, nicola we know you you you've spelt out in, in vivid detail what you you wanted to hear from the budget but didn't hear so i'll, I'll give henry the final final word uh, no, there was something else i wanted it was a plan for growth i mean i think i mean my, i mean i think my sort of my thing that i was really keen to see was on the investment rules because the reason we lost hs2 in terms of another delay was simply because the gdp numbers were slightly worse and so it looked like they bust this artificial target to reduce debt as a proportion of gdp but that includes big projects like hs2 we now saw yesterday that dft officials were saying exactly what me and other people said when it happened uh, a lot of them know a lot more about infrastructure than i do the chair of the national infrastructure commission that this would make the project more expensive so i do think rachel reese has got a point about that that spending rule is a bit a bit duff so they may have nicked the childcare stuff from bridget phillipson which will obviously a very smart political move but i wish they'd nicked rachel reeves's fiscal rule on debt because it's a pretty good rule and it's much better designed to avoid OBR forecasts creating complete carnage in the capital programme for no apparent reason, apart from, in the end, increasing the overall cost of projects, which I do think is a bit nutty bananas, if I'm honest, Rob. So it's rules of the game stuff for me. It's not just what a Chancellor wants. It's the rules they apply, and often the rules do more harm than the political judgment does. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess we'll, uh, well, we'll hear more reaction and we'll hear more of the small print of the budget coming out in the next few days. But we've um, we've run out of time, so I want to say thanks to uh, Zoe, to Nicola, to uh, Tom and to Henry. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you at home found that uh, an interesting 40 minutes discussion on the budget. And if you want to uh, see, hear more about what was in today's speech, you can uh, subscribe to the Northern Agenda newsletter, which you can find at www.thenorthernagenda.com. .co.uk. I've been Rob Parsons and it's been great to have you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.